This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Ops and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pray. Mark Scopel is with me as always on the show. And I should remind... Duck fans out there who are listening and are not currently subscribing to DuckTerritory.com. Right now, you can get your first month off for a dollar. It goes to $9.95 thereafter. Or you could sign up for an annual membership. And right now, we're offering uh, a year subscription for 60% off. That comes out to $3.58 a month or your build up front for the entire year, which comes out to being $42.96. Uh, incredible deal. I highly encourage you guys to jump on that if you haven't. Uh, good options for both. If you want to go month to month, you can get in for your first month for a buck. Or if you want to just dive right in for a year, you can save 60% and pay just forty two ninety six up front, which is spread out over 12 months of $3.58. So really good deal there as well. Now, uh, Eric, there's a lot to get to on this podcast. We're going to talk football recruiting because National Signing Day is just a couple days away. Uh, We've also got some historical context that's happened again for the women's basketball team that happened over the weekend uh, in their games against the Mountain Schools. And where we're going to start first is with the men, Uh, the men's basketball team. They went uh, down to the Bay Area, and look, it's a really, really – difficult place to play for for whatever reason for the men uh, in the Bay Area it, it's they had three sweeps uh, against the Bay Area schools since the 70s they were going for just their fourth sweep uh, since I think since 1976 uh, they beat California Thursday night a come from behind 77 72 victory and then they went into Stanford and it was a game Eric where at halftime, you kind of felt like, hey, Oregon's going to get the sweep, and, and this could turn into a blowout because they were up eight points at the half. Uh, they were Offensively, they were shooting the ball well. Uh, they had two guys with balanced scoring, and, 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 and Chris Duarte and Peyton Pritchard. And then the second half showed up, and they made just six field goals in that second half. Stanford went on two crazy runs. Uh, Oregon went – without a field goal for over six minutes in, at one point in the second half, and they fall 70-60 to 60, uh, at Stanford Saturday afternoon in a game in which I think you're pretty disappointed because this was a game in which yeah, Stanford played well, and Oscar De Silva you know, had a career day, 27 points, 15 rebounds, but Oregon just missed a ton of easy shots that they normally make, and this could have been an, an entirely different game. So many missed shots at the rim uh, is what yeah. stood out to me. Uh, it just seemed like even even Peyton Pritchard missed a couple of bunnies that would have been, I think, you're right. Th- this game felt like it was right on the brink of being opened up into a double-digit lead for uh, quite a bit of the first half and then the second half as well. And 
Oregon even leads by five points with about eight minutes to go and basically is unable to do anything offensively um, over the next five or six minutes. And then you look up and suddenly Stanford is leading by seven points going into the final four minutes of the game. And uh, and the Ducks just couldn't figure it out from there. And uh, you look at the numbers, Matt, I, I kind of wonder what from your perspective changed over that last, I guess, 10 minutes or so of the second half because – uh, you know, we mentioned the fact that they missed some bunnies and Pritchard missed a couple of shots. I thought the bigs were unfortunately unable to, to convert a couple of shots that were they were set up well on. I know Stanford's got a little bit more size than some teams Oregon will play. And, and you're right, De Silva was absolutely a difference maker, the best player on the court um, for that game. But what, 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 like, what other things stood out to you? And, and, and were there things that maybe you've watched this team more than I have now? Were there things that you've seen come up in previous games that bit them or did this feel like new problems? Um, I, I think this is going to be what Oregon looks like if they go cold from the floor because we've said for a long time that this team just doesn't have much of a low post, you know, back to the basket kind of overpowering presence down low. When you're not scoring well, you can just get to the free throw line or, or get some easy buckets. Uh, and Father Dante was supposed to be that guy. Francis Sakura was supposed to be that guy. Um, and, Obviously, Dante is still out with an injury. Okoro played 20 minutes. He did score two points, and he did shoot, you know, one of one. Uh, but he, he was limited. He didn't get a lot of looks. He battled foul problems again. He had four. Um, I, I think this is a situation in which we saw what Oregon would look like if their shots aren't falling and they don't have someone step up as a low post option. Now, it doesn't have to be um, – a center. It doesn't have to be a Coro or Dante. It could be Shakur Juson. It could be Chandler Lawson, CJ Walker. Um, it, it, heck, it could even be a Peyton Pritchard, Chris Duarte, Will Richardson. Uh, one of those guys literally just getting to the rim and drawing the defense to them and then either finishing it in, with contact or uh, dumping it off for a layup to somebody else. Uh, we just didn't see that, and Stanford really made Oregon have to shoot, and it was a night in which, look, guys are going to have off nights, but teams, when they have off nights shooting that are really good and find ways to win, they still find ways to get to the line, get to the uh, get to the paint, and, and create a lot of you know easy looks, and for Oregon, they, they just missed a lot of them, and they, it, I felt like they had a lot of good looks. They got to the free throw line 15 times. Maybe you'd, you'd want to see that a little bit more, especially with how poor they were shooting. But uh, this, you know, they, they took 24 threes, and maybe that's a little bit too much for for how they were shooting overall. They thought they shot 32, percent but I think you got to give Stanford a little bit of credit. Look, this is a team that's they were first in the conference a couple weeks ago, and yeah, they they opened up with you know the weaker part of the schedule, and sure. And that has to be into, into taken into consideration, but they're playing good basketball, and they're 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 greatly improved from where they were a couple of years ago. Ty, uh, Tyrell Terry, their freshman point guard, is the real deal. Uh, Oscar De Silva is a solid player. Dejon Davis is a solid player. You know they've got guys that are good, uh, and I think you have to give them a little bit of credit. And and look, Oregon still got a split. Like and and the most important thing is is. Later that night on Saturday, USC lost. They got destroyed by Colorado at home. And so Oregon lost at Stanford, gave up first place, and USC went into that game with an, with an opportunity to, to secure first place for the week. And, or USC did, and they, they failed to do it. And so Oregon emerges 
after Saturday night, still in first place and still half a game up on uh, the, the rest of the conference. There's a bunch of teams right behind them. Colorado's at six and three, USC's at six and three, Oregon's seven and three, and then you've got Arizona and Stanford who are five and three, one game back in the standings. So uh, the gap never really changed. It's just Oregon added an extra loss to the schedule. We'll talk a lot of the big picture stuff here in a second, but I, I do want to just really quickly kind of circle back to issues in t- on the interior for Oregon. Yeah. Think about Dana Altman coach teams, especially over the last five or so years with the guys they've had up front, the ability uh, to compete down low, the ability to score down low, to, to block shots. And this team just seems, the you know, of the last five or so years, clearly the worst collection of big guys. And I don't want to take too many shots at guys, but you look at the box score from – from, from this weekend's game and, and only three made field goals by non guards for the entire game. And that's just, yeah, you, that's need more. Not, you need more production there. And the fact that you don't have a single guy who's really a legitimate shot blocker. You had a, a player in De Silva who had five offensive rebounds, finishes with 27 points, 15 rebounds was pretty much unstoppable. Um, where did the answers come from, Matt? I mean, did, I mean, how, how does Oregon get through this? Because, you know, in the past, they've at least had a Kenny Wooten who could defend the rim and make things difficult, who could, you know, get out there and uh, and rebound at a high level. They've had Jordan Bell and Chris Boucher, who are obviously a little bit more uh, complete all-around players. This year's team just doesn't seem like they have that those contributions. And we right. saw against against Washington, Chandler Lawson stepped up. He had a big game, but you look at the box score for this one, he didn't score, only played 15 minutes. Uh, Okoro's been very up and down all season. Same thing with Justin. And Walker and, and Dante, who've all been kind of dealing with injuries on and off. Uh, from your perspective, are there easy answers here, or, or is this going to have to be something where the guards and, and mainly Pritchard and Duarte are going to have to kind of carry them wherever they want to go? Well, first of all, Oregon can't survive if Duarte and Pritchard are going to combine for 10 of 42 shooting from the field. Uh, and five of 19 on three pointers. And then both of those guys combined to shoot just six free throws. Like Oregon's not going to win a lot of games if the two best, the two best players have bad games like that at the same time. Typically all year we've seen, uh, Oregon have one of those guys, if not both of them play at a high level and it's kind of carried the squad. Uh, and Richardson played really well. He had 17 points on eight shooting, but uh, it wasn't enough because Oregon literally could not score the basketball in the paint, and they went for a real long scoring drought. Um, I, I think they've got to figure out some kind of way to, to utilize Shakur Justin's athletic ability. Um, he's not a, an elite jump shot taker. Uh, he's not a guy that's going to hit a lot of three-pointers, um, his mid-range game even. But I, I think he's a very good athlete, and I w- they've got to figure out some kind of way to get him moving uh, and get his defender uh, either s- switched off and, he- and he's up against a-, a-, a guard where he can kind of post them up or a big guy where he can blow by them and, and have that defender going east to west a little bit. Um, I-, I think Okoro, he's- he, during the early part of the season when they basically had to have him play big minutes, he did. Uh, that's that's the most perplexing thing of, I think about of everybody is that early on in the year, yes, Okoro wasn't uh, this guy that you were looking at and saying like he's going to score 15 a game and and whatnot. But he played really sound defense in the interior. He you know, he guarded James Wiseman well. Uh, he went really well toe to toe against 
uh, Seton Hall's seven foot two center. Uh, he he did. I thought it did a really good job against Gonzaga and 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 against North Carolina as well in terms of defense. Now he's not scoring the ball, but uh, you look at some of these games and early on in the year he played really really well. And all of a sudden it's just like he he's hit a rut conference play wise and has really struggled you know since the league has has kicked into gear. I mean, he, he's had games, almost every game, where he's in foul trouble, and I think that's the biggest one. Figure out a way to, to get Okoro back to where he was at the beginning of the season. I mean, he had 10-10 and 10 against Fresno State in the opener. He had 7-9 and nine against Memphis. He had 12-4 uh, and four against Houston, and then against Seton Hall, he had four rebounds, and against Gonzaga, he had five rebounds and a block shot. Uh, against Michigan, 4-4. Four, four against John Teske, a seven-footer that just didn't do anything in that game. Montani had 12 points, 17 rebounds. So he was playing at a, at a much higher level in the early part of the season. And then for, for whatever reason, he's just he's lost something. And I think that's going to be the key, is trying to find a way to get Francis Okoro back so that you feel confident in getting 20, 25 minutes out of him every game and then figuring out a way to get Shakur Justin uh, some looks. Now the issue is Okoro and Juice can't play together because neither guy is much of a jump shooter. And I think that really clogs the land. The only way that you can play at a high level with both of them on the floor is if Pritchard Duarte and whoever that other guard is, if it's Richardson or if it's Mathis are hitting threes and the, and the, the defense has to stay space because they can't let one of those three guys get a clean look. Now let's talk big picture really quickly, Matt. Um, what, what does this loss do? I, I know I know. before Stanford lost to Oregon State earlier in the week, I think Stanford was the highest-rated net ranking team in the Pac-12. I think they were like 11th. They fell to 25th or 26th before the Oregon game. So this is not a bad loss, just like uh, the Colorado loss on the road was not a bad loss, just like we said the Washington State loss is a worse loss than those, but not a terrible loss. Is this, I mean, so Oregon now is 7-3 and three in Pac-12 play. What does this loss do, and, and do you look at Oregon and go, like, there's, you feel pretty confident they're still going to be a top-four seed, or, or is that sort of up for debate for you right now? Yeah, I, I think you've officially said goodbye after they lost to, to Washington State to the one seed, and now yeah. they're, they're very close. I, I don't think it's gone yet, but... It's highly unlikely in my eyes <clears throat> that they can get to the two seed level. So now you're playing for the three. Maybe you get to the two. I mean, it's still out there, but I don't right. think it's, it's, it's probable anymore. I mean, it was before the Stanford game that you, you could, you, Oregon was probably going to be a two seed out west. Now, uh, that's going to open things up. And so Oregon, now they're, they're playing where, like, you don't want to be shipped out of, the West region. And that's, that's starting to be where the movement's coming from. Uh, you know, Jerry Palm of CBSSports.com, he did his update Monday morning and he's now got Oregon, uh, in the South region as a five seed. So they're, they're playing in Sacramento. So they're still out West to start the tournament. But now if they advance to the Sweet 16, they're having to go to another region and not stay out West. And that's going to be the goal for Oregon. The last half of this season, 
uh, and conference play is can you make sure and can you ensure yourself that not only do you play in Spokane or in Sacramento in the first two rounds, but if you do advance, you're playing in the West region. It's highly attainable, but the one seed probability for that is gone because Gonzaga and San Diego State have that wrapped up. Uh, and then the two seed is, is going to be difficult to get because uh, both Gonzaga and San Diego State are likely going to be one seeds. So someone from another region is going to get bumped down to a two and will probably go to the West to play in, uh, in that region. So you're going to have to fight with that. You're going to have to fight trying to get to the three seed. I think the three seed is, is the more likely one for them. But if they drop a couple more games, yeah, then they could really become a four or five, maybe even a six seed uh, in the NCAA tournament. Now, the, the thing for Oregon to know is the schedule is going to flip in their favor now because they opened conference play and they they played ten games in their first uh, half of the, of the conference season and. They, uh, they had to play six road games, uh, on their non-conference schedule. They opened at Colorado, they opened at, and then they played Utah, and then they played at Washington State, they played at Washington, and now recently, uh, they've played at Cal and at Stanford. They have another road game this weekend, this one game of the year, of the week. It's a Civil War game at Oregon State Saturday night. And then after that game, they play Seven more games, five of which are going to be at home. And the only road games they've got left after the Civil War uh, is at ASU, at Arizona. Two very, very difficult games. But if they can get a split there, I think that's if they if they win at home the rest of the way, they win at Oregon State, and then they get a split at ASU or at Arizona, they're going to win the conference. That's going to be enough to win the conference. And if they do that, they're going to they're going to be in a position where they can get a three seed and stay out west in the NCAA tournament. Which game over the last portion of the conference season would you say scares you the most outside of the Arizona game, which probably feels like the like the obvious one? Because there are some pretty good home games on the schedule here left when you look at Colorado and Stanford, um, both at home. Yeah, I think Stanford and Colorado are really good, going to be good games. ASU is always difficult. Uh, to play at that would be my first one of that could be a game in which Oregon could get swept on the road. I mean, ASU is such a high, you know, helter skelter type of game. Who are you going to play? The good ASU or, or the bad ASU? You don't know that. Um, but for me, I, I think it's going to be Oregon State because Oregon is the better team. They are the better coached team. Uh, they have the better individual player. But there's something about the Beavers going into Corvallis, especially uh, when Oregon has to play in the Civil War first in Corvallis, it's difficult to win. Now, Oregon typically has played uh, you know, one of their first two or three conference games in Corvallis. So they're getting a little lucky uh, where they've gotten some games in and kind of gotten used to playing on, on the road at a couple different places and whatnot. So Cor- Corvallis is difficult. I mean, we've covered games there before. So that for me, Eric, I... I think that's going to be the one we're going to really learn a lot about this team on Saturday. I think going into Corvallis and if they can come out of that, that game with a win, then they're the team that we think they are. If they lose that game, uh, it, it could open up some ideas of, well, is this team really what we think they are? Um, real quick, the women's side, we don't want to touch too much on, um, the, the Yukon women 
against the Oregon women's basketball game because we realized, look, uh, the shelf life of this is not very long because we're recording this podcast Monday Monday morning. Uh, that game's played early afternoon Monday. So we're going to have a full more breakdown of that game uh, coming out on Wednesday or Tuesday, some, sometime later this week. Um, and then we'll also t- discuss a little bit more about what happened over the weekend uh, against Utah and against Colorado from a women's side. But Sabrina Inescu did happen to yet once again continue to make uh, some impressive achievements in her career in, in a recent win this weekend, right? I mean, she just does it every time out, it feels like. And we should mention she kind of, I don't want to say coasted, but didn't really seem to push herself too much in the Utah game, at least offensively. She finishes with 10 points, 10 rebounds, seven assists in that one, but she was right back at it on Saturday, 24 points, 13 assists, 10 rebounds. She gets a triple-double um, before the fourth quarter even starts. She didn't even play a minute in the fourth quarter of that game. She got there um, in the last 15 or so seconds of the third, uh, gets that rebound, I think actually 23 seconds, as I recall, uh, to get that rebound to get to the triple-double. Uh, again, fifth of, the, of, of this senior season, 23rd of the career, um, a, a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, the fact that she just does this with such ease. And again, it's one of those things where every half when you cover her, you have to just go look at her stats because usually she's at least on pace or close to being on pace for a triple-double. Even in games where she's not playing very well, maybe she doesn't seem all that engaged, she's usually got like six points, five rebounds, and three assists at the half or something like that to the point where you have to kind of keep an eye on it. This one, she was even further than that. I think she had like 17, six, and six, so felt pretty clear she, it was capable um, that she would get there, but she does it again and again. 10 for 14 from the field, which to score 24 points on just 14 field goal attempts is pretty darn impressive, especially making 10 out of 14 shots. Oregon uh, absolutely rolled in this one. They win by about 50 points against a Colorado team that had actually been, I don't want to say feeling it or on a roll or anything, but they've been pretty competitive over uh, their last four or five games in conference play. Oregon shuts them down pretty early. They score 31 points in the first quarter. They win handily. Um, but this is all about what Sabrina can, can do. And uh, she, she is just so fun to watch and such a special talent. And again, we're going to talk about how she performs on a bigger stage against the preeminent program in the country in UConn uh, on, at a later date on the next show. But uh, she's proving every night out that she is must-watch basketball. And I know some of these games got kind of it's hard to watch them because they're on networks, you know, Pac-12 networks, mountains, and I know a lot of fans don't necessarily have the channel. But when when you do have the ability, you know, the ability to watch her, whether it be at home at Matthew Knight, like you'll get the opportunity this week, or the UConn game later today, or upcoming games that will be televised, whether on the Pac-12 networks or on ESPN, uh, make sure just just watch her because this is the back end of her career at Oregon. She only has four more home games at Oregon that are part of the Pac-12 season, um, and just. Nine over, sorry, eight overall in regular season play. Uh, her, her career is coming, you know, to an end here soon. And just, I think it's one of those things you don't take her for granted. Don't take what she's doing for granted because this is just special. And again, on Saturday, in a game again that was kind of forgettable, she once again is the story and, you know, very, very memorable in terms of what she can contribute on the basketball court for an Oregon team that is, again, very much uh, in the heart of a national championship run. That's their aspirations. Those are their goals. And it doesn't feel like we've seen anything uh, over the last month or so of the season that, that says they can't do that again. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be um, a, a marquee game. We'll have a better 
a recap of that once that game is concluded. Uh, but it's going to be a really good showing for uh, where Oregon is in the pecking order of just the hierarchy of college basketball. Not this season, but just in general. We'll, we'll get a good parameter, I think, of, of where this team is at uh, and, and just the, the life of college basketball at the women's level. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we've got some recruiting news to, to dive into for Oregon football. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopo is with me always. Uh, we've got some recruiting news. Uh, it's signing day on Wednesday, and Eric, it, it, this just feels like We've said this when it was December, that December kind of became February in the recruiting world. Um, if, if you follow recruiting for a long time um, and you're used to the the excitement and the drama that February brought with recruiting, it's kind of gone to the wayside. Like there's a majority of the prospects signed in December. A lot of decisions are made. And yes, there are a couple five stars out there. There are a couple four star top 100 guys and, um, Oregon's involved in one of, with one of them, uh, a top 150 guy. And there is, you know, some, there is a little bit of intrigue for Oregon down the stretch of, you know, could add a couple more players. But for the most part, Eric, we kind of know like, okay, it's, there's, there's just a couple names that are, that are available. We have a good indication of, where those guys are leaning to, and it's a matter of just on Monday to, or on Wednesday, does does what we expect happen, or is will it not happen? And and it's a very small microscope of of just the overall cycle uh, for the second signing period. Well, I, before we jump into who's still on the table here, um, does it feel like from your perspective, Matt, that this is now the second year they've they've implemented a December signing period with the February period kind of being you know the second one where the, any players left kind of wrapped this is the third. recruitments up. This is the third year. Okay, third year. Sorry, my my fault. But does, does it feel like I, I don't know? This February period feels more and more. I guess maybe the more we we get through this, like it just is is sort of an afterthought. Um, and, and I don't I don't want to say that this isn't exciting and that there aren't going to be decisions that are made that will be potentially pretty significant for programs, you know, nationwide, but maybe this is just a scenario where Oregon did such a great job in the early period that there's not a whole lot they had to, not a whole lot of loose ends they had to tie up, but you just kind of look at this and it does feel a little bit anticlimactic in terms of like, not, there's not a whole lot left here. I mean, there's not really much upside for Wednesday to be a shocking day where a bunch of surprising stuff happens and, um, what, what do you think? I mean, now that we've kind of got a couple examples of it, are you enjoying the early period? Do you do you like that the, the second period ends up being quiet, or or do you, do you have kind of a preference one way or the other? Um, I I did like the from an entertainment and coverage standpoint. I think the one signing period in February was better because there was that. That month in January when the season was over and everyone kind of knew what everyone was this past season, there was that flux where there was maybe, you know, Oregon all of a sudden would have like 15 new names pop up 
and out of those 15, maybe eight or nine of them would come in for an official visit. And out of those eight or nine, six or seven of them um, would, would sign with Oregon in February. And it's like a, a, a chunk, a quarter or a third or, you know, 20% of the class would would materialize and, and present itself from January on. And that's just not the case anymore. Um, I think it's better for the player 100% right. to have two signing periods, and that's how it should be. Uh, better, it should be better for the player. But just this year in general, yeah, I, I've, I mean, I, we, I sat back this weekend and was like, I should be like cranking out a bunch of stuff or, you know, calling a bunch of people and trying to get, you know, scoop on some things. But then I'm like, I, well, I did it for this guy. I did it for this guy. And that's all that there is. Like, I guess I don't really, <laughs> I, I guess I don't really need to like, you know, be doing a bunch of, you know, investigating and, and trying to, you know, find some scoop and whatnot because there literally just isn't much going on to the point where, Oregon's coaching staff really wasn't even on campus this past weekend. The, the, the final weekend for a month where coaches can be out uh, evaluating players, hosting players for for official visits, because uh, month of February is a dead period, and they the rest of the month. And they chose, instead of hosting guys on campus and showing players the, the program and whatnot, or having a junior day like a lot of other schools did, Mario Cristobal was in Alabama Saturday uh, checking in on Jason Jones, a, a four-star defensive tackle currently committed to Alabama. Earlier in the week, he was in Florida uh, checking in with Malachi uh, Weidman, a four-star wide receiver committed to Florida State. So that tells you, I, I thought, everything that you needed to know in terms of uh, there really isn't anyone else out there that they are recruiting at a very high level. Now, there are a couple names out there that have popped up that could maybe hold off on signing in February and signing with a school in, in March or in April, uh, one of those being Zachary Evans, a five-star running back who happens to be the number one running back in the country. Oregon ha- was trying to get him on campus this past weekend. Once that couldn't, couldn't happen, uh, Oregon chose to, you know, to not bring anybody in and they, they went and saw guys instead. Uh, Evans is a deal where, well, he's not expected to sign with anybody. He was committed to Georgia, signed with Georgia. They let him out of his letter of intent. And there's definitely some, some off field baggage, whatever you want to, word you want to use. I don't know if baggage is fair or not, but there is some stuff that's going on behind his recruitment, um, that has made some schools a little leery and, or, you know, Oregon said if, if things check off, uh, you know, culture-wise and player-wise, then, yeah, they'll recruit him. But uh, it, it's very, very early in the stages there. And there's really only two main targets that Oregon's going after, and, and that's Jason Jones, a four-star defensive tackle, like I said, and then four-star wide receiver Malachi Weidman. I know you're not a huge fan of making predictions sometimes, but so maybe I'll kept you off guard here, but... Wednesday afternoon when we're at the press conference, there's been no official time set for that, so I'm guessing saying afternoon, but typically it seems like it's about noon or, or 1130. Who, who, who would you expect Oregon to announce as additions to this class, or, or is it possible in your mind that they come up empty-handed altogether in this period? Um, I, I think it, it's highly likely that they add Jason Jones. 
I think Tennessee and Oregon are battling neck and neck for Weidman. You could probably argue just as easily for Oregon as you could for Tennessee that they are the team to beat. Um, and in those situations, I tend to lean to the school that's closer to home. And Weidman's in Florida, and Tennessee is a lot closer to Florida than Oregon is to Florida. So I, I would probably, if I was forced to choose, I would probably say Tennessee, but I'm not going to put a crystal ball in for Weidman unless I definitively know he's picked Tennessee because it's literally that back and that, you know, it's that much back and forth between Tennessee and Oregon right now. It literally could go either way. And I'm just not going to put a pick in because it just doesn't make sense to when it, it's such an up in the air and one day it's Tennessee, one day it's Oregon. Um, so for now, I, I would be pretty confident in saying uh, Jason Jones is going to be the guy that Oregon signs. And look, you go in and you you, you nab a, a six foot six, six foot seven defensive tackle that's three hundred thirty pounds, uh, has the ability to play nose or D tackle, and a guy that was at one point committed to Alabama currently is committed to Alabama. Um, and they just ran out. They're trying to get him to, to to blue shirt, basically delay his enrollment because they ran out of scholarships. Um, if you can get that caliber of a guy, I think you look at it and say, this is this is a home run. If Oregon doesn't land a wide receiver in this spring, and you look back and Hudson is the only wide receiver signing from this class, obviously they lost out in Johnny Wilson on December signing period. Is that a disappointment for you in terms of Oregon in this class, that they only end up with one wide receiver? Or do you feel like there's enough talent on the roster to kind of offset that plus the possibility of maybe finding uh, an unsigned player, a grad transfer, something else to kind of shore up that position group. Couldn't it be both, Eric? Like, I, Could be both. Like, I feel like they really missed a good opportunity to go out and nab another really good receiver, like a, like a, a taller guy, um, someone that can bring some size to the position because Oregon's three best receivers next year are going to be – in my mind, going into the season, at least, Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, and Micah Pittman. Those are three. Those are your three top receivers going into the 2020 season, and all three of those guys are under six foot. Um, I, it's a very small group, and I don't know if Oregon wants to go that small at the receiver position. Um, but they do have guys who are waiting in the wings. Brian Addison for two years has has been close. Um, he's going to be a sophomore next season for the Ducks. Uh, after playing his red, he played in four games as a true freshman, and then this past season in 2019, he played as a redshirt freshman and had some bright spots, but he certainly had some some rough spots as well for a freshman, which is expected. Um, and then you've got a guy like Devin Williams who transferred into the program, and he'll be eligible right away. He was a former four-star receiver um, that was signed with USC at a high school over Oregon. You've got Lance Wilhoy. You've got J.R. Waters. Um, I think those guys can be pretty good, but I think there's something to be said about competition and going out and getting an, another elite tall guy that can step right in and and push and say, hey, I'm here to play. I'm not here to just a red shirt and sit behind you guys. I'm here to play and have competition kind of force the, the best players to emerge themselves. From my perspective, there there are a couple wild cards here in Lance Wilhoyt and J.R. Waters where if those guys 
who didn't play at all as fresh, true freshmen because of injury largely, if those guys can take a step, if those guys are capable of being contributors, that to me might offset any shortcomings or however you want to describe it in this recruiting class at wide receiver. Because if you can get one or both of those guys to be contributors, you now have a rotation of wide receivers that gets closer to seven or eight. Um, and that at that point, because you got you still have a Josh Delgado in there who we haven't mentioned. Uh, there, there are there are bodies that are capable. If you can get to that number of, of well, I don't know if it's five, six, seven that you feel pretty good about, that's okay. But if you can't get either of those guys to develop, we also haven't mentioned an Isaiah Crocker, who's a former highly regarded recruit, who's struggling to kind of get himself sort of going in terms of you know competing for playing time, but. If, if you can't get anything from that group and it ends up being basically only the players that played significant roles this last season plus a Devin Williams, you're going to miss out and you're going to feel kind of crummy about not being able to land a receiver that could have been a difference maker in this spring, in my opinion, just because there are only really a couple of proven commodities returning on this roster at wide receiver. And that's a position where you're breaking in a new quarterback and you really want uh, quality production, you want quality player, players to play there. Um, and missing on a guy like Weidman at the end here or a Johnny Wilson who, who you lost on a signing day in December, those will end up hurting, I think, exponentially more if you can't go land a guy and you can't also get the development that you need from a Will Hoyt, a Waters, and maybe even a Crocker. Yeah, you, you need to have a couple guys emerge, whether it's someone that is on the roster or if you can go and find somebody. I think that's why Malachi Weidman's so so important because like you said, they, they had Johnny Wilson committed, six foot five guy. He was kind of what you were looking for from a body type of, at the receiver position, one of the bigger, bigger receivers. And he flipped to ASU. Um, and if you can go out and you can get a Malachi Weidman to take his spot, then it's kind of like no harm, no foul. Like you, you, you found a, a player just as good. Uh, if not, maybe a little bit better. Uh, same body type can bring the same type of impact to the field that uh, Johnny Wilson was, was going to be asked to and, more importantly, um, could push the other guys. Now, Isaiah Crocker could be a guy that maybe the light turns on for him this season. Um, he certainly had a ton of talent coming out of high school, but my issue with him is, with Crocker, Eric, is that he's not a 6'3", 6'4", guy. He's like, what, 6'1"? Um, yeah. You know, so he's, yep. he's closer to the type of guy that Johnny Johnson or Micah Pittman is than, than what – um, Devin Williams is supposed to be what Brian Addison is supposed to be, what Juwan Williams was for Oregon this past season. That's where they need the help, I think, is Crocker might be a guy that can give you, you know, some, some more reps and gives you another body in the rotation, but at the same time, he plays the similar role that you've already got a plethora of guys at. And that's where it's going to get difficult. Maybe Oregon goes grad transfer route. Maybe someone emerges there again for a second year in a row, they, they go grad transfer to find a bigger receiver. I, I don't know, but is it something that you'd be freaking out about? For me, Eric, I, I don't think it's it's a really bad concern or I'm not really overly worried about it, but it's enough where, hey, like if you are going to get better at, this is something that you, you could focus on. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at right now is that I don't feel like wide receiver – Let's put it this way. I don't feel as low on wide receiver right now as I did on wide receiver a year ago when you lost Dylan Mitchell. There weren't really any proven returners besides Jalen Red, 
and you were looking at grad transfer possibilities, you were looking at players that have been kind of disappointing in the previous season. Oregon is at a better spot right now at wide receiver because Johnny Johnson has elevated his play. We've seen Jalen Red with another soft, strong season. We've seen Micah Pittman, even though it's been in, uh, because of injuries, it's been in kind of lesser roles than what we expect. We know he's a capable contributor. I think you feel decent about Devin Williams based upon some of the stuff we've heard about how he performed in practice. You have a Delgado and Addison, even like a Spencer Webb who played good in, in moments where they needed to. Um, you feel better about the position as a whole, but I do think you'd like to find another guy, another player, whether it's one on the roster or not, like we've said, who can kind of fill in there to, to kind of sure some things up. Maybe that's a Spencer Webb or Patrick Herbert. Um, I don't know, but I, now that I bring it up, I'd rather see her, you know, Webb and Herbert stay at tight end, but maybe that's how they, they get through it again in 2020 if nothing emerges. But you are right. They need to figure something out there. Um, maybe they, maybe they, they find Weidman and, you know, between Weidman, Will Hoyt and Waters and Devin Williams and Brian Addison, two of those five guys emerge as kind of your one as a starter and, and one as the backup or the second unit for the, for the, you know, the bigger possession type receiver that you're looking for. Maybe that happens. Uh, certainly something to watch. It's going to be one of the spring questions, one of the offseason developments to track. No doubt about it. Uh, we'll have a better, clear idea of where Oregon's at with that uh, just in a couple of days. And remember, signing day is on February 5th. Uh, don't really know much in terms of when Oregon's going to have their press conference, but Eric and I will both be there to cover it. We'll have a podcast breaking down the full class in its entirety as we know of it uh, at that point in time. So uh, stick with us here on the Austin Audible's podcast uh, as we dive into more of that down the road. And for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Brain, thank you for listening to this week's Austin Audible's podcast. Adios, amigos.